ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Part of it is that this parliament is more diverse than ever before and so the backstories of people are much more interesting. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation in Sydney. And soon we're going to be joined here on Gadigal land by Annabelle Crabb, who's been dining with politicians of all stripes for her new season of Kitchen Cabinet on the ABC. This week, she hung out with the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, in his kitchen, and she's going to join us a little later to tell us what she learned about him there over a bowl of seafood chowder, I believe. But before we get to the main course, PK, I thought a good bowl of fortune-telling would serve us well for entree, and I'm talking about the intergenerational report handed down by the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, this week. These reports come out every five years, and they give us a a long-range snapshot of the economy and our society, really, in 40 years, and the cost pressure that come along with that. And PK, to be frank, it's not looking very good for the bottom line in 2063 because by then the demographic time bomb that's really been highlighted in these reports since the first one of them came out has well and truly exploded. We'll be living longer. In fact, the number of Australians over the age of 85 will have tripled. And with that longevity comes higher health care, aged care and costs for the NDIS. And our birth rates are going to be slowing too. So that means fewer taxpayers to shoulder the burden of this ageing population and all those escalating care costs. Um, and that's not to mention the challenge of you know finding and training that care workforce that's going to be necessary. What to do about these looming challenges? Well... Every treasurer since Peter Costello has faced this question and Jim Chalmers is leaning in to funding options. The pressures on the budget are intensifying rather than easing into the future. Uh, aged care, health care, the NDIS, defence and interest costs on our debt, they're all growing very fast. And so some combination of those three sets of things, uh, spending restraint, uh, savings uh, and uh, tax reform like what we are implementing and legislating at the moment, they will be all important parts of the puzzle. Mm, Tax reform. Mm. Not surprisingly, PK, the conversation then did turn to taxes because obviously our current tax mix, which is really so firmly or really heavy on the personal income taxes, won't do the job. But Jim Chalmers, they're showing little appetite for big tax reform, I think. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's really interesting because these reports – yeah, they do actually matter. And of course, they're just projections. Yes, I've had a few people on the text line making the point this week that, you know, sometimes Treasury can't get it right for the next year, let alone in 40 years. I, I appreciate all of that. And they are just forecasts, but they do give us some idea of where we're heading and then the opportunity for having these bigger conversations about what we want. Like we can actually craft our future as well, right? Like we, that's the point of policy in politics, crafting the way you want your country to run. And I found it odd, I'll say, Fran, um, and and very, very risk averse that the government is painting a picture 
through this intergenerational report, which is, I think, in many ways bleak when you look at the climate change trajectory mm. that we could be on, when you look at the yeah, ageing population. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the ageing population, the fact that individual taxpayers who are going to be younger generations, my kids, your grandkids and their kids are going to have to pay for us. Uh, I, I think that we do need to have a conversation about the tax mix and everything, but the government has kind of shut parts of it down now. They say they want this this reform which is modest and incremental, and I think that's because they've made a decision that the politics is just too hard. What I found really interesting this week is that we did have a bit of a split in the coalition if you listen to the Liberal Party, they've heard any hint that any taxes would be looked at because the government's opened the door to some possibilities of tax reform, even even modest. The opposition says that that would be a Trojan horse for higher taxes. That's Jane Hume's language. She's the shadow finance minister. The Nationals, who I spoke to, I spoke to David Littleproud, took a bit of a different position. Here he is on RM Breakfast. We do need uh, political leadership from all sides to have that mature conversation, knowing that the, the burdens that are coming on us, uh, the NDIS, Medicare, and making sure that we can provide that safety net. So I think it's important we look at what that tax mix looks like, what our economy will look like in 30, 40 years with the demographic of the population. And I think that's about making sure that it's equitable and, and, and having a conversation about is the current system fit for the future. So that was David Littleproud, the leader of the Nationals, much more conciliatory. He pointed in that interview to the fact that he'd gone along to the jobs summit that the government held, uh, drawing a contrast really to the fact that Peter Dutton hadn't gone along. He didn't name him specifically, but he didn't um, go to that summit. So, you know, the Nationals have played it a bit differently on some issues, even though they're in coalition. But Fran, what's clear is that a conversation around tax has to happen um, in the wake of this report. And not just tax, everything, right? Everything has to be discussed because we are on a difficult trajectory. And at the same time, we've got this deep politicisation of all these issues where we where it's hard to have a conversation even though we need to have it. I spoke with Jane Hume, who is, again, the Shadow Finance Minister. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. I spoke to her Thursday morning and, and, and she really really zeroed in on this tax reform thing, saying that no higher taxes should ever be considered, which is pretty classic Liberal Party politics, and that the focus should be on spending, on cutting things like uh, NDIS spending and, and health spending, and that that should be the approach. I reckon that's a really interesting line, that you would only look at that side but not the other side. Presumably, if you want to do significant um, heavy lifting as a political party, whatever side you're on, you need to look at both, don't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a ticket to nowhere to say we can't increase the tax take, but we have to cut our spending when the report's telling us that the cost of the care economy alone is going to double from 8% of GDP to 15% of GDP in 40 years' time. There are going to be costs. It's not just about cutting taxes. It's about the tax mix as well. These decisions will be made because they will have to be made. But it's also, as you referred to there, it's not just about tax. It's not just about revenue. It's also about productivity. And what does that mean? That means, you know, investing and getting our skills 
base right, our training better, our schools better. You know, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but we've got some pretty awful NAPLAN results this week that should be a real wake-up call for us. I think the reason that uh, Jim Chalmers is sort of closing it down for now fits into what we know about this Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, PK, because we know he is sort of playing a long game and he said as much at the ALP conference this weekend. He wants a second term because he wants the chance to bed in some of the changes they are making, IR changes, changes to education that will come out of some of the reviews that that the minister is making and a whole lot of other changes. So he's not going to, you know, break election promises or or bring in, you know, frightening tax reforms that can unleash a scare campaign. It's going to be incremental until he hopes he can score another three years. And that's all very well. But we need to step up now. The government knows it. Yeah, absolutely. The Prime Minister has made crystal clear the kind of approach he wants to take. And when you do incremental reform, which is modest, if you stay in power long enough, a lot of those modests can lead to something bigger, right? That's how they see it, I think, that that it's about a long period of government, not a short flash in the pan, and that you build up to it. Well, you mentioned it, Fran, awful. I think you called it the NAPLAN results. And the school results were very much in frame. The NAPLAN results revealed that one in three Australian school students aren't meeting minimum expectations in literacy and numeracy. That is so much worse when we look at students in remote and out of suburban areas and for Indigenous students, basically disadvantaged students. About a third of Indigenous students need additional support compared to the overall 10%. The unions were out making the point that the schools that are mainly dealing with the disadvantaged students, which are public schools, are not funded to deal with the complexity of their needs. The Education Minister, Jason Clare, says the report has made it blisteringly clear that education reform is needed. Here he is. This is our last best chance to get this right. At the moment, public schools aren't funded at the level they should be. Yes, we need to make sure that they are, but not just that. We need to make sure that we spend this money on the things that are going to work. I'm not interested in writing blank checks. I'm interested in making sure we invest this money in the sort of things that are going to help children like the child I was in a disadvantaged school. These children are falling behind at higher levels than other children across the country, that we invest this money in the sort of things that are going to help them. So that was Jason Clare. So I think these damning statistics, Fran, and there has been changes to the way NAPLAN is recording the data, and I think it's it's demonstrated quite clearly that we are we've got to make some big changes for some of those particularly disadvantaged students, and the consequences of that are really really uh, deep for generations for people. What do you think they're going to do? Are they are they are they serious about changing? the funding mix here? Well, I think Jason Clare was pretty clear. I don't know necessarily it's going to change the funding mix, but I think he's going to tie the funding and he's been clear about that. A lot of money has been poured into public education or education generally, our schools since the Gonski Review came up with the school resourcing standard. Uh, A lot of money's gone in, but the results aren't clear. Now, the Minister says there has been some improvement. You know, the the reading skills of an eight-year-old today are a year ahead, so they're a year in advance than they were 15 years ago when NAPLAN started. But 
and this is what you're referring to, the gap in the reading skills of a student from a relatively well-off family compared to that in a poorer household has worsened. 15 years ago, it was one year, that gap. Today, it's two years. So those indicators are going backwards. Jason Clare, as you mentioned, he went to a public school. He grew up in a disadvantaged electorate in Western Sydney, and he's really committed to this. He's got reviews going on, and we've already had the Higher Education Review, which is looking at better teacher training. There's a review into schools going on. Um, and there's also a review into early education, which is important for setting up the foundations. But his message, when he sits down with the states and territories for the next um, education funding agreement, schools funding agreement, is they're going to tie funding to change. They're going to tie funding to make sure that the schools invest in things like catch-up tutoring so that the students who are shown up in the NAPLAN test to be behind, get the extra focus that they need and to invest in counselling, to get invest in healthcare because we know that the kids from disadvantaged backgrounds often have poor health indicators too and uh, school is a place where that can be noticed and action taken. So he wants these kind of real changes in response to getting extra funding from the Commonwealth and that's what he's going to be doing. Now, whether that makes the difference or not, it is, as I say, positive that we're going up in some of these indicators but I think when you compare us to the rest of the world, PK, we are still going backwards and that's, you know, when we're talking about productivity, we're in a global economy and we really need to be making, stepping up and making inroads in these sort of basic things like our early education and primary education schooling. Yeah, and this is a signature issue for the Labor brand too, right? Like they are, this is this is their bread and butter, you'd think. So uh, actually investing and leaning into dealing with what is obviously incredible disparity is what you'd expect from them. Now, we're getting the right rhetoric, I think, from Jason Clare that this needs to be addressed. Now it's about whether that can be executed. They do have wall-to-wall Labor governments, almost, I mean, we're talking about the intergenerational report and the, the productivity gains we need to make. This statistic, I think, is key. In 2016, 83% of kids in public schools finished year 12. By 2022, that had dropped to 76%. So that's going in the wrong direction. We need to get, you know, cope in a global economy and be able to deliver the productivity uh, improvements that we need. We need a, a a population that is better educated, not dropping out of school earlier. So these are the sorts of indicators that we really have to take notice of and jump on now. Should we bring our guest in, Fran? Let's do it. <laughs> Annabelle Crabb is the host of Kitchen Cabinet and, well, an all-rounder, let's be honest. Welcome to the party room. Oh, you should see my bowling. <laughs> I'm amazing. <laughs> she is an all-rounder. I can vouch for that. Annabelle, it's great to have you with us. The Prime Minister is going to announce the date of the voice referendum yep. next week. He's going to do it in South Australia, which gives us a great big fat clue, I think, that perhaps the Yes campaign is in trouble in South Australia because for a it's referendum you need 50% plus of the yep. vote, but you need a majority of states yep. too. South Australia looking like the weak link. Yeah, so I think uh, I think the Yes campaign is... Not optimistic about Queensland. No, uh, it's gone. Not I optimistic think the about said. WA. Right, even the smaller states count as a state. Right, so it'll be interesting to see whether, when the campaign p- kicks in, we see greater, I don't know, greater prominence of the leaders of the Yes campaign. I don't know. It's 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 got a very nebulous feel to it at the moment. It's and hard to describe it as a campaign yet, really. Right, isn't it? exactly. I and think. maybe that's because the. You know, the starter gun hasn't been fired. But I think at this stage, I don't think that the 
prospects of a yes vote have improved over the last six months. And so whether they can improve well, over the next six... Well, they've gone backwards. I mean, the yeah. polls are pretty clear on that. Exactly. They've gone backwards. No one's really contesting that. It's whether they can regain some ground for those voters that are either what they describe as soft no yep. or undecided. Yep. Well, look, I mean, I think that the challenge for the yes campaign is going to be shutting down the noise, you know, um, and making a judgment about how to deal with these sort of side issues that flare up and generate a huge amount of heat and noise, mm. like this discussion about, well, is the Uluru Statement one page or 18 <laughs> pages or 26 pages, which is, I mean, it's a fact, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not, not even hard. a kind of a, well, it's a matter of opinion situation. And yet that discussion is just sort of often racing and I think that the danger of those things, a- along with this sort of narrative that the change to the constitution is sort of big and radical and could have unforeseen side effects, which actually dovetails nicely with the, well, we don't even know how long uh, the, the document is or whatever. That is all stuff that gives people a reason to vote no while saying, I'm not voting no because, you know, I'm a racist or I I don't support Indigenous people being recognised in this country. It's like it's just that it's there's so much I don't cons- understand. It's too risky. Yes. It's yeah, too yeah, that's risky. right. Yeah. Now, Annabelle, in yeah. your new season of Kitchen Cabinet, if I can pivot a bit, you spoke with opposition leader Peter Dutton. Yes. And you touched on his views, actually, on the proposed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. I think the words and the expansive form of words that the Prime Minister is proposing to put into the Constitution mean that there is there is no area of public policy responsibility that won't come within the purview of the the voice. What did he reveal about how or why he and his party have moved to no? Peter Dutton's background on this is sort of complicated, as as are a lot of senior coalition former ministers, because a lot of the the run-up to the um, voice proposal was actually executed under the leadership of various Australian prime ministers of a coalition Hugh, right? And Ken Wyatt, who was the former uh, Minister for Indigenous Australians, who shepherded with bipartisan support this proposition through the process of hearing the Uluru Statement and then coming up with the the dialogue that led to the... And that was with the consent and the approval of the coalition ministers, right? So Ken Wyatt obviously is not in Parliament anymore, but he's said of Peter Dutton, well, he was fine with it when it was me proposing it. And now that it's the Albanese government proposing it, Peter Dutton has made a strategic decision to oppose the voice. Although it's it's a moderated strategic decision because he says that he he supports a legislated voice, uh, but not a voice in the constitution. And now what I challenged him on in the interview was, if you're problem with the voice is that it's in the constitution, why do you support a legislated voice that has the same design features, right? Because his other critique of the of the voice is that it creates a class of rights in one set of Australians that is not enjoyed by other Australians. And that's the same whether it's legislated or in the constitution, right? So that's my first sort of question to him. And the second one is that factually what the amendment to the constitution says, it says that the voice shall be created, designed by the parliament. It says that the voice will have the right to make representations to executive and government. 
it doesn't anywhere say that that executive and government is obliged to take no. any recommendations on board, right? And in fact, if a Dutton government, I mean, if it got up and then you had later had a Dutton government, I mean, he'd be perfectly within his rights as prime minister to say, thank you so much for your advice. Advice, I'm filing that in the bin. Well, it also says governments and the parliament will be able to shape right. what the voice looks like, the construct of it, you know, what is dealing with the parameters of it effectively. And do you know what, though? Here's the thing. So um, obviously... That program of Kitchen Cabinet is an edited program. I talked to Peter Dutton for, I don't know, four hours and you end up with 29 minutes of television. I reckon that our back and forth on these constitutional issues around The Voice probably went for about 10 minutes. And what you see in the show is... Um, probably the liveliest or the most easily understood of it because you get deep into the weeds pretty quickly with this stuff and when you're arguing sort of fine points of constitutional law, it's not yeah. great television. It's not great for a referendum success either because once you're well, once, in the weeds of anything... Well, what do we know about political campaigns, right? What do we absolutely know from every single election campaign? It is that the message that can fit on a bumper sticker is the one that will succeed. If right? you're explaining, you're losing. That's what they say, isn't That's it? That's right. And the thing is, the other thing is that the that the message that picks up and resonates with something that people are already a little bit thinking is also going to be very powerful. So this idea that oh, I'm so confused, I don't really know what it's going to do, I should vote no, is it's an easy campaign to run, right? And And that's the history of lots and lots of referenda in Australia that have failed. And people look at the 1967 referendum, right? And and that had, what, 94% yes Huge. votes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, A, there wasn't a no campaign. So it was both sides of politics support, saying, right? okay, this is what this referendum is going to do. But you know what? If you ask, if you go out in the street and you say to somebody at random, what did the 1967 referendum do? I bet you anything, eight out of ten people will say that's when Aboriginal people got the vote. Got the mm -hmm. vote, which didn't happen. Not true. <laughs> Actually, if you look at the 1967 referendum, it made a change that was um, kind of about shifting responsibility for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians from state and territory to become a federal area of responsibility. So counted them in the census, that was No, it. that's not right either. It wasn't <laughs> counting them in the census. They Hang on, I'm doing a podcast on the voice referendum and I thought that's what it did. No, it, it's about, they were counted in the census, but they weren't counted towards the head count of yeah. people in states and territories that that um, on which um, Commonwealth payments, like federation Health payments... Health agreements, were, schools right? agreements. Yes, so, I mean, it's a technical right. counting. And yeah. so, now that didn't matter because the Yes campaign in 67 actually lied to the people about what this, you know, referendum was about because they just said, Do you know what... Time to recognise Aboriginal people. Time to, you know, make them count. And so everyone went, went yep. And they could do that because there was no no campaign. Correct. Mm. But if there was a no campaign back then, can you imagine how quickly that would have got bogged down? Oh, I'm already bogged. Yep. Look, let's go to the actual nature of this debate at the moment because a conservative yep. organisation chaired by a prominent no campaigner, Warren Mundine, has found itself in some pretty difficult terrain over comments at its conference over the weekend, uh, purported comedian Rodney Marks under, you know, this this other kind of comedy name, mocked the acknowledgement of country, he's defended his remarks, said it was just, just all jokes, a skit. But Annabelle, 
Gary Johns has also made very uh, offensive comments. What does it tell us about the direction of the tone of the debate? Well, first of all, I think that those remarks were offensive and shocking and I just, I don't understand. And I find that particularly troubling because we are in the middle of a national debate that's going to result, yes or no, in mm. changing our constitution and to insert this kind of divisive, disrespectful content into the middle of it in the name of comedy, well, I not, just find And it's just not relevant appalling. to the question before the Australian people, right? Yeah. But, but that's happening in every single direction because, I mean, a couple of weeks ago you had Tony Abbott saying, do you know what, I'm getting a bit sick of the welcome to country yeah. thing or the acknowledgement of country, mm. and that's been happening in the Senate as well increasingly over the last year or two when, for instance, I mean, the Greens senators do it a lot. They'll acknowledge country at the beginning of any speech. And then you get a little bit of heckling and kind of like, oh, we've had enough of this. So that is another example of something that is not connected to this vote, but it's becoming a discussion topic. Oh, are you sick of it too? Before we finish with The Voice, next Tuesday, my guest on Kitchen Cabinet is Linda Burney. And um, she's the Indigenous Affairs Minister. Yeah. Of course, these episodes are largely about the life of the person concerned and her life story is just extraordinary. This woman has come through more pain, loss, grief and trauma in her life than just about anybody in that parliament and I'm always interested to see how political figures use their early experiences and how those early experiences direct their behaviour in politics. Annabelle, bit of whiplash, let's yep. go there. The Prime Minister's son, <laughs> yes. Nathan, yep. was a topic of interest this week. The Australian Financial Review, the AFR, reported that he had been gifted mm. the Qantas Chairman's Lounge membership, which Alan Joyce called probably the most prestigious club in the country, and later that he had received an unpaid, to be clear, two-week internship with PwC, which, of course, is, you know, kind of political poison right now, yeah. uh, following what AFR sources uh, say Anthony Albanese apparently had discussions with the, the firm's former government relations boss, that when he was in opposition, to be clear, he wasn't prime minister when this happened. Now, uh, interestingly, the opposition didn't jump on these revelations, even though they, you know, they could have. In fact, the Nationals leader, David Littleproud, defended the 23-year-old. What do you make of this, yeah. the public interest in stories like this? Okay, well, it's, it is a really difficult topic because Prime Minister's children have a pretty crappy deal, right? Like get all of this scrutiny. They can't live their own lives. They don't see their parents, you know, mm, very I'd much. I'd hate to be one. They're terrible, right? Like, so I have sympathy for them just from the get-go. But also their parents have to be careful about perceptions, about special treatment of their children. And, I mean, you know, I can remember when Tony Abbott's daughter got a scholarship to a prestigious design school. There was a huge amount of commentary about that. I'm sure that wasn't very comfortable for her. But the test here has got to be whether there is a perception of some sort of mutual favour system. And I don't think you could ever really suggest that Anthony Albanese has been super nice to PwC in government, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, wow. <laughs> if that's what patronage looks like, uh, no I, thanks. I think Nathan dodged a bullet that right. that internship didn't lead to a job there. <laughs> so Qantas, though, is an entirely different matter, all right, because the Albanese government has made a decision to block Qatar Airways from multiple routes, um, increasing their routes in and out of Australia. Now, the tourism lobby has estimated that that's like three quarters of a billion dollar decision 
that, that will cost the tourism industry. So in that light, and we know that Anthony Albanese and Alan, Alan Joyce are friendly. Mind you, Alan Joyce and Peter Dutton are on pretty good terms too. So, like, I mean, don't jump to conclusions about, you know, which side of politics yeah, the tough rhetoric. Alan Joyce is buttering up because I reckon he's a both-size buttered kind of guy. Yeah, I think he loves <laughs> um, a bit of butter. Despite appearances. Anyway, that's the problem. It's like, okay, I mean, apart from what is a 23-year-old doing in the chairman's exactly. lounge? Exactly. Why would you want to be weird. there, really? Yes, politicians can assign a spouse to also have chairman's club privileges. But I think for Anthony Albanese, if he didn't think about that when he was kind of a giving it the green light, then I'm sure you must be regretting that because it doesn't only look a bit bodgy in terms of the giant solid that he's done for Qantas, but it also, I'm sure it doesn't sit all that well with his kind of working class constituents who go, oh, so your kid can have a bottle of Krug before, you know, (laughs) jumping on a flight, you know. Beauty, good for you. I mean, I think that's right. I think that one does not really satisfy the pub test, as they say. Yeah, I think think perceptions do matter, though, for politicians, all politicians. Annabelle, I can't wait till I watch your next episode. I think Linda Burney will be a really interesting interview subject. Yeah, a little bit of news in it as well, which will interest you. Um, Also, the week after that is Lydia Thorpe. I think this is the best season we've ever made of this of this show and part of it is that this parliament is more diverse than ever before yeah. and so the backstories of people are much more interesting you know there's just so many alternatives to the well i went to university and i joined the labor slash liberal <laughs> club and then i went to work for the yeah, staff the roll for a little up bit got, it's just a, yeah, it's, it's just a roll up of diversity isn't it yeah and the truth is that like it's been absolutely proven beyond a doubt that diverse groups of people with different backgrounds and experiences make better decisions. They just do. And that is the reason for having a diverse parliament, not because, you know, it's all wokey-wokey. I just love that you said wokey-wokey. Thanks, (laughs) Annabelle. We'll move to questions without notice. We give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Thank you very much, Prime Minister. My question's to Fran Kelly. The bells are ringing. Time for our question time. This question comes from Linda from Adelaide. She writes, the voice referendum has to have a majority of votes in the majority of states. How does the referendum view donkey votes? What happens if, for example, only 10% of votes are valid votes? Well, Linda, I think that's very unlikely that only 10% will be valid. If we go... A donkey vote is when people just put, you know, one, at, they, they just put their, their tick in the first name on the list. Now, for a start, this will be yes or no. So I think that's different. Um, that's not like you can just pick the first name on the list and that's what a donkey vote is. Um, in Australian federal elections, the donkey vote is normally around, you know, one to two percent. Now, sure, that can make a difference in, in marginal electorates, but generally it's a small proportion of the vote. This is compulsory voting in a referendum as we have compulsory voting in all our elections in Australia. So I think we can rest assured that more than 10 percent of the votes will be valid. In fact, I'm sure over 90% of the votes will be valid. But if we're talking about people not bothering to vote or, you know, not caring enough at the, about it that they deliberately, you know, erase or de- deface their 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 polling card, uh, that's another matter that could have an impact and it goes to the atmospherics around this vote. But generally, I just think we have to accept that there will be some who aren't really into this, don't respect the process and won't do it. I think it's unlikely to be a huge amount 
it's not to say, I mean, the polls show that we're not much, we're not far off 50-50 at the moment in terms of yes or no. The no campaign in polls seems to have the edge. But this could be a very close thing. And given a referendum to succeed needs 50 plus, you have to get over 50%, how people vote and whether people vote informally could make a difference. So I think that both campaigns will be very mindful of this and they'll be trying to not only turn out the vote, but turn out the vote and make sure people vote in a proper and formal way. Yeah, what she said. Uh, Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. We're especially fond of voice notes, which you can email to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Yeah, we love them. Remember, you can follow us on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's right. That's it for The Party Room this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.